0: Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. Let's get right down to it because I've got some fascinating, fascinating topics of discussion this week. I'm starting off with Michael and we begin the podcast with FIRE, Financially Independent Retire Early. Let's begin. Freddie, lately you often discuss the financial aspects of biking. I'd like to shed a bit of light on this from the point of view of someone who considers himself a member of the FIRE Financially Independent Retire Early Community. The general rule of thumb in the FIRE community is that you don't buy motor vehicles worth more than 10% of your annual income. For example, if you make £25,000 a year All of your cars and bikes combined should be worth less than two and a half thousand pounds or 10% of what you make. This may seem very strict, but it gives you the most financial flexibility and allows to maximize investments and minimize risk. This can be on finance or in cash. It doesn't really matter as long as you can get finance below 7% per annum. However, I've broken this rule a few weeks ago when I bought an Indian Scout on finance at 6% APR with 40% down or at 6% per annum interest and 40% down. Here's my reasoning. Biking is such a strong passion of mine and makes me feel so much better that it just makes sense. Of course I could have gotten a cheaper bike, but as you mentioned in your podcast, I would just be thinking about replacing it. The truth is I love the Scout and it's my dream bike. I have been waiting for it for years and now it fits my needs perfectly. I've only owned it for less than one month now, but I can see, or but I can't see myself ever selling it. With the bike, I'm just so much happier and generally more fulfilled. If I saved and invested the money instead, it would just make me regret it later on. I have zero buyer's remorse. One really has to think about why one's saving and investing the money in the first place. Obviously uh, obvious answer is to build wealth, but for what? More people want to enjoy the money later. I don't know if there's any later in store for me, and I would just like to enjoy it now to some extent as well. I keep on investing and saving, but there's an exception to every rule. I'd rather never get rich than live a life I hate. And having a bike guarantees I don't hate my life, especially being an Indian Scout. Best wishes, Michael. You know, Michael, this is... uh, This is just uh, fascinating hearing from you, especially someone who likes to follow, as strictly as within reason, the the fire lifestyle. And I should say, Michael, I'm a, a hugely strong believer in that financially independent retire early lifestyle. I think it's a superb way to live and think about life and it offers so much financial freedom. I like to think of myself as fairly signed up to that way of life. I also, I've been in a, a situation where, you know, I, I remember I wanted to buy a, a rental property and I ended up desperately having to pay off a good enough chunk of one of my properties in order to for it to make financial sense. And I spent about two years doing this, kind of paying off X amount of my mortgage as much as I could all the time. And at the end of this two year period, I remember thinking, my my God, what, what's the point? I'm missing out on so many opportunities. You know, people saying, Freddie, let's go and do this or that. And I thought, no, 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 no. No, I've got to be sensible. I've got to make sure I'm in a, a good financial position. And, and I look back at those two years where I was really quite strict on myself and I don't look back on it. It's a tough one. I don't really look back on it thinking, yes, well done, Fred, that's good. I look back on it more thinking, God, Fred, you actually missed out on a lot of opportunities there. It's really hard getting the balance right. I I do have more financial freedom now because I achieved what I wanted to within that two-year period of time, but I missed out on opportunities as well. So would I do that again for myself, i.e. be so strict for two years? No, because in my mind now, I've done my strict bit and I... I, Michael, I understand 100% why you've done that, because there have to be, there have to be some exceptions to the rule. And, uh, and for me, you're right. You don't know when you're going to die. I know of too many people who retire, and within a year of retirement, they're dead. You have to live right now. It's just the best thing I learned from that two-year period. You must live right now, the second, because the only thing you're guaranteed is right now. Nothing in life is guaranteed when you're older, whether it's a year older or 10 years older. Must live for today. Michael, thank you. I move on. JB in Scotland. Freddie, thought for, sorry if you hear a a creaking, I'm in the living room. I'll try and stay still. I like standing up every so often. I'm in the living room and I've got a squeaky chair. In fact, I'll move it while talking. Freddie, thoughts for the podcast, ride for the slide. Ah, JB and this is JB in Scotland. Thank you, JB. I, I know it makes common sense, I do, but I'm going to get to this a bit later on, JB, because I've had someone who sent in a message uh, about riding for the slide. Southeast Asia relocated back to the UK, so I'm going to get to that, JB. So thank you for bringing that up. And I know, JB, you're an advocate of always riding for the slide. And it makes absolute common sense so thank you right i move on to rob freddie i thought i'd let you know about something i discovered last year i've got a heated vest which uses a battery power pack you can find them quite cheap on amazon 30 to 40 pounds and they sit underneath your jacket they're not exactly stylish but they are a cheap solution to make really cold days comfortable thank you rob Yeah, Rob, you know, the embarrassing thing is, a few people have said, Freddie, you need to get a heated gilet. I own one (sighs) and I'm too lazy to charge it. And that is pathetic. I've just learnt about the kind of rider I am. If something's not relatively simple, I just won't do it. I've got a lovely heated gilet. It's got this removable battery that you just plug into the wall to charge and I can't be bothered to charge it. It's absolutely pathetic. But it's a very good shout. Thirty to forty pounds on online on Amazon. Mine was one hundred and twenty pounds, so that's extremely good value. Thank you, up Moving on, Freddie. Are you the podcast? An old Harley or a new Royal Enfield? Right. Let's get down to this regarding the Yamaha SCR nine fifty that I discussed on a previous podcast. This bike's downfall is that it's billed as a scrambler, but it's incredibly heavy, 248 kilos. I took a test ride and this was extremely off-putting. I just couldn't get along with the weight distribution, which is also my major reason for getting a T120 instead of a Royal Enfield Interceptor 650. I have to say, just butting in here. I agree, it's the only negative I have to say about the Royal Enfield Interceptor its weight distribution is slightly too high. And it is, it's a little off-putting and it's my only negative about what is otherwise a superb bike. Moving on to point two, belt slash shaft slash chain drive. I believe that you would notice the difference, Freddie, especially in the throttle response. Did you notice it when riding the BMW R9T? This is really embarrassing, Toby. It's pathetic actually, I didn't really notice it. I think I'm so untechnical with biking, I didn't fully notice it. Maybe I did, but not to an extent where where I would be able to describe in any detail. Maybe I'm pushing a bit, maybe I s- slightly, slightly noticed it. Uh, regarding the super meteor, Freddie, I'm curious did Royal Enfield invite you to India for the press launch? No! No, Toby, they didn't. I would have absolutely loved that. Oh, I've, I'd have given anything to be there. I'm desperate to ride the Super meteor. No, I didn't get any kind of contact. I actually get along really well with Royal Enfield, but I didn't get any contact for that, I'm depressed to say. Next point, engine size advice. A lot of listeners place too much emphasis on engine size when selecting a new modern classic motorbike. Uh, So much of how dangerous the bike is comes down to the rider and not the displacement. I can see how this could be true for a sports bike. But with a a true modern classic, the pleasure of riding isn't speed, in my opinion. Oh, I have to read this out. Okay, so Toby sent Toby's included a, uh, a little quote from Varna magazine. This is a superb magazine, actually. I think it's American. Really, go and check them out. They're top-level photography, freedom lifestyle, V-A-H-N-A, Varna Magazine. Have a listen to this quote. We need a way to outrun the perils of modern life, the mass hysteria and mental breakdown of society, the never-ending hamster wheel of work and deadlines and bills and bad news, the mistrust in government and the media, and in each other. The constant fear and division and the culture of self-obsession that's pulling us further into toxic digital worlds. There's got to be a way out. And I think motorcycles help. This is one of the best descriptions of why we ride I've ever seen, credit to Varna Magazine. Toby, I'm bang on, bang on agree with you. I continue from Toby. I bought a T120 in spite of a 1200cc engine. There is nothing remotely intimidating about the bike except perhaps the weight of it doing slow speed manoeuvres or just lugging it about as your mate, the and Flyer, often demonstrates in his videos. I agree with the advice to buy the bike you want if you can afford it. Rather than a stopgap in between, which you may be bored of or disappointed with or underwhelmed with, after three to six months. A mate of mine bought a Husqvarna Svartpillen 401, applying the same above logic. I might not be ready for a bigger displacement as a novice rider. And literally one week later, he wished he'd bought the 701 model instead. Happy riding and tell Monica her videoings, fantastic. Toby, a Brit living in North Carolina, fantastic. Toby, I've got I think I've got family out in North Carolina. I'm actually sure there's a a Fort Dobbs out in North Carolina from an old family member. Fort Dobbs, I'm sure there is. Toby, that is fascinating. Husqvarna Svartpil and your friend buying a 401 and then a week later wishing he'd bought the 701 instead. It's it's exactly what I always say. I I, I will also, Toby, and I mean this. Next time I ride a belt or shaft or chain drive, I will pay more attention to the difference in feeling. And thank you for all of the tips. And great to hear from you, Britain, North Carolina. Right, i move on to, this must be JB. Yes, JB in Scotland. Freddie, I hope you're well. Time for a knees up. Or are you a knees down kind of rider? Can I just interject here? I'm sorry, everyone, if I sound bunged up. I, oh, that's because I am bundled up. I've just—I've got a cold, and I've just realised I'm sounding more and more ridiculous as this podcast goes on. So, apologies for that. I continue with JB. Are you a knees up? Are you a knees up? Are you a knees down rider? What am I talking about? Are you a knees down rider? It was a skill that, once upon a time, most riders aspired to. Track day courses are devoted to shifting your weight off the seat and off the bike. But did you ever find yourself in a situation where you needed or wanted to actually get your knee down? Noting the advanced, noting that advanced courses like the Institute of Advanced Motorist, motorists and ROSPA, Not exactly sure what that stands for, but it will be something similar noting that these courses do not condone it, do not condone, I guess, knees down or shifting your weight too much. Um, And indeed, my advanced instructor, ex-police rider, is no fan of it. And he feels many riders do it without needing to and on occasion are doing it wrong and the sake of developing uh, and the sake of developing good skills often police actually counter lean so that you stay upright on the bike to maximize visibility ahead to recap the need to put the knee down is simply a is simply to get more weight over while minimizing the lean of your bike yet there seems to be uh, would be mark marquez is trying to get their chins on the tarmac it requires above intermediate level of skill which poses your uh, your views on track days and also what's been your experience of you and your friends putting your knees down jb jb fascinating really interesting i don't think uh, i've i've covered this too much I remember when I first passed my test, JB, and you're absolutely right. I was desperate to get my knee down or at least get as close as possible. And I never came even remotely close. With regards to track days, I, honestly, I haven't had a colossal amount of interest yet. And I'm not sure if I will change and evolve, but so far I haven't had an interest yet. I have a feeling and I welcome anyone telling me otherwise. They may be quite expensive, so it could be quite an expensive hobby that you'd be taking up. What with the special tyres and getting there, booking your place, making sure you've got full leathers, of course, as well. I see the appeal. I mean, it's racing. Who could not see the appeal in that? But so far, JB, not yet. And with knees down, there is one thing I wanted to add here. I'm glad you, you brought this up, JB, because the, one of the, the biggest revelations in biking for me, I remember when I passed and I would often be getting to a, a beautiful, uh, snaking road from left to right, where you have to really move the bike around. And when I passed my test, I would always be bolt upright on the bike, like a, a rigid pencil. And I, I really couldn't connect with with bends and corners and sweeping turns. I really couldn't, I was bolt upright, absolutely rigid. Uh, and I I just couldn't connect with the bends. I couldn't really get a feeling of being connected with the bends and, and I actually couldn't take them in any, anything like good speed. And then about, and it did take about two years, about two years after I passed my test, I suddenly discovered I'm gonna, I was about to say the art of leaning. That uh, is me pushing it too far. I do not know the art of leaning. But I suddenly discovered how much better I could attack Benz by actually getting my bum off the seat and really throwing or leaning my body into the bends. And I found it a revelation. It's something I do even now. A lot of the time, I know if I ride with people, they'll often say, Freddie, you're, you're shifting around a lot on the seat. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite things when when going from left to right on a bike, shifting, getting off the seat, moving my weight. If I'm doing a right hand bend, moving my weight over to the right, you know, just, dangling my left leg to hold onto the bike and really getting my bum off the right hand side of the seat. It's a revelation in my cornering ability doing that. So I found it fascinating that actually a lot of the advanced riders don't condone it at all. I open this up to anyone, as I do with all of the comments. What are your thoughts on it? I'm a huge fan of shifting weight on the bike and making the most of it. I feel it gives me more confidence, Uh, more ability to really control the bike. But I'm, I'm fascinated to hear if I am or I'm not alone on this. So JB, thank you for raising that. Let me know your thoughts, anyone on that topic. I move on to Liam. Freddie, I know you've discussed various finance options on the podcast when we're talking about dream versus attainable biking. A listener last week mentioned the mileage restrictions on PCPs. And I'm not sure if many people actually know it, but you're never really tied into a PCP for 36 or 48 months, etc. It's possible to keep them a year and move on. For example, a few years ago, I bought a car on PCP. It was £18,000 worth of finance uh, over three years at £220 a month with a £9,000 balloon payment at the end of it. I got sick of being too careful. Every scratch, every mark, curbed alloy annoyed me as something that I had caused. All I had to do was wait one year until the value of the car had caught up with the depreciation, sell it, clear the finance and move on. So after a year, I had £14,000 left to pay on the PCP sold the car for £14,000, and just pay it off and walk away. My point is that you're not really held into these things for four years like people think. Just think of it as renting a bike or a car for a bit. Uh, just think of it as renting a bike or car for a bit and then just handing it back. Regards, Liam. Excuse me. Uh, Liam, that's a really interesting point, actually, because it means what would that be? £4,000 for a year, £300 a month or so, which is probably about right for just leasing a car. It's a very interesting point. Thank you for sharing that, Liam. Hopefully some people will find that interesting because that makes it significantly less daunting than uh, than I had in my mind. So thank you. I move on to Richard, Freddie. I was listening to the podcast, and you were talking about restrictor kits. I listened to another podcast. It was Brew Time. Yes, that is Bruce. Bruce. Uh, teapot one. Teapot one. listened to another podcast, and I think it was Brew Time. And the quest was mentioned, uh, and the question was mentioned. He found the kits dangerous because they restrict power on the full range and can bog down the bike when you need to accelerate, even at slow speeds. They therefore have a negative impact on performance overall, rather than just shaving peak horsepower. Interesting, but I can't say I'm an expert since we don't have these rules in Canada that restrict horsepower. Once you have your license, you can buy and ride whatever you want. I don't necessarily agree with this, since many young riders have lost their lives prematurely by doing silly things on 200 horsepower sports bikes. Regards, Richard. Richard, extremely important point to raise, um, and I'm delighted to share that on the podcast for anyone listening. so So thank you so much for that. To Stuart good morning Freddie and Monica what are your listeners experiences? Uh, what are your listeners experiences regarding changing the color of their machines? Oh this is fascinating. I shared this on on Instagram. Uh, you can see I've got a I said last time dedicated Instagram and Facebook pages for the podcast so you can get involved I'll share pictures of a few things that I've discussed the details of those uh, pages in the written description of this podcast episode. So I'm carrying on with Stuart here. What do people think regarding changing the colour of their bikes? The reason I ask this is that last year I painted my gold Kawasaki ER5 to olive green and black. It's an old machine that I use daily all year round and maintain myself as far as I can But I don't have a garage and everything is done on the roadside at home. I used to have, I love this, I used to have an ex-MOD, Ministry of Defence 110 Defender. And as they do in the army, I would top up the the olive drab with a can of MOD olive drab and a paintbrush. It worked very well and suited the hard life that the poor old Landy had. Following this logic, I got a tin of surplus olive and did some prep and painting. Tank and rear in the olive, and sides and front fender in black. I have to say, I'm pretty happy with the rugged look, and of course, I can just whip out a brush and tidy up marks and scratches whenever. I duly changed the logbook colours and it came back with the new details, no problem. But When I came to change the details with my insurer, I was told by the I was told the underwriter would not support the change as a modification. I would not support the change as a modification and they dropped my policy. The next cheapest broker uh, could find me was almost double the annual policy cost. Naturally, I will shop around when renewal comes up, and I'm sure I will find a better deal. But I was shocked, Stuart. This got a lot of uh, a lot of interest. Uh, people sending over messages about this. This is a hugely important important point you make here with regards to with regards to modifying motorbikes. It's a fascinating point you make. You you played by the book. You painted your bike, you told the, the DVLA, what we have in the UK, the Driver Vehicle Licensing Agency. They gave you a new logbook saying, great, here's your, your new updated bike. And yet the insurance companies don't like it. And I, I was reading because I posted this, uh, Stuart's predicament onto Facebook and Instagram, and I was reading through the comments. So thank you so much for sharing your comments and thoughts on this. It it seems to be a factor that, Stuart, you painted your bike in green. And I had no idea about that this would be an issue. It seems that green specifically is a very dangerous colour and it's quite prone to crashes because it can it can blend in camouflage, hence, I guess, M.O.D. defenders. It can blend in with the background and it's not as visible as some other colors. That is one possible argument as to why, as to why it's gone up. So please do get involved in this, people. Have you had similar situations with modified bikes, not just painted, but modified in general, and it's been a complete nightmare? I mean, especially the fact Stuart's got an old ER5, so it's not worth the world, so paying double for insurance. So I know the feeling, Stuart, it's seriously painful. Uh, and it almost makes you think, just paint it back in gold again to save the hassle. i will be fascinated to hear people's thoughts on this, but the, the feeling I've had from checking the Instagram and Facebook replies to this could be the fact that it's it's been painted specifically in green, which may be a dangerous color. I should say, I'd also like to hear from people if you do subtle mods, on your bikes. For example, I've I've changed the the sprocket cover on my Bonneville. I've put a different seat on it. I've also had slightly different indicators on it. I, is it silly? I'm I'm actually saying this. I don't know. I consider them small enough modifications where I don't tell the insurance company. That's the truth. So I'd be fascinated to hear all of your thoughts on that. I don't know if that's a, a foolish thing I've just mentioned on the podcast, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Share your thoughts on it, either Facebook, Instagram, or send me an email over the, uh, the website. I will only share your first name, so no one will be going to jail from people that I've been reading out from. I move on. Uh, someone, uh, so sorry, I didn't save your name. Freddie. I've got a Honda VFR 800 VTEC with over 60,000 miles on the clock, which I've had for nearly seven years and I would never get rid of it. For me, it's the perfect all-rounder with the right blend of performance, comfort and handling. I also own a Royal Enfield Himalayan, which I bought new in September 21 after much research and watching videos on YouTube, especially itchy boots. It's a brilliant little bike and far more capable than the numbers suggest on paper. 20 years ago, I'd never have considered or entertained having a bike with only 20 horsepower, but with age and experience, I found there was a joy to riding and getting the best out of and getting the best out of it. Sorry, let me just sit back down, uh, and getting the best out of it that you don't get with a hundred horsepower bikes. I spend a lot of time out exploring the lanes and back roads around the forest of Boland in Lancashire and take it green laning as well, but throw it, uh, but throw the back box on it. And it's a great little commuter. And I even use it when I volunteer as a blood biker rider or blood bike rider. Uh, I, I bow down. I mean, it's just brilliant what the blood bikers do. I've only recently learned about it. Giving up your own time for free. That's fantastic. Well done. I continue. Although it's happiest running between 50 to 60 miles an hour, it will still sit at the speed limit on motorways comfortably. My rather rambling point, though, is that I think people shouldn't get too caught up with power figures, but should just enjoy bikes like the Himalayan for what they are and how they make you feel. I think Royal Enfield especially have really tapped into something with their current range. Simple, small capacity bikes that are just fun to ride and a pleasure to own. Cheers. You're you're so, so bang on right with this. I'm also going through this as well. I remember thinking I have to have a thousand horsepower, thousand horsepower. I have to have a thousand cc bike because that's a proper bike. You know, now I've been riding two years, I've got to go and get a 1,000cc bike. So I've got to go and get a Triumph Speed Triple, 130 horsepower. And the truth is, for me, the, the Bonneville with half the horsepower is more fun. But I took two years of agonizing, thinking, right, Fred, you've given up biking now, moving from 1,000cc uh, super naked to a Bonneville. Well, that's it, you've given up. You're slowly on the path to giving up biking. Oh, well, never mind. I had, I had a good six years. I'll get to the Bonneville and then I guess I'll give up a few years later. How wrong I was. It's a revelation riding these, these more, whatever you want to call it, just slower, calmer bikes where you can soak in the feeling of travel and adventure. Uh, and I have to also say, these Honda VFRs, VTX, 800cc, 60,000 miles on the clock, 100,000 kilometers, superb. And coupling it up with a Himalayan, green laning, that would very possibly, a Himalayan, excuse me, a Himalayan may very well. I always toy with it. someone asks what would go my my dream garage, and that may be very close to it. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with regards to bikes, horsepower and fun. It's absolutely true. Another point on that as well. The faster the bike, the more complicated, the more things that can go wrong because you're going to need more, whether it's twin discs or more rider aids or upgraded suspension and brakes and yada, yada, yada. They're usually much, much more expensive to run these more powerful bikes. So the simpler bikes, a lot of the time, they're more fun. You can use all of the power and they can save you a huge chunk of money as well. And it opens up biking to so many more people. Right, I move on. Let me just, oh, excuse me one second. I just blow my nose, excuse me. I move on to Adrian, Freddie. I have a dilemma. I, okay, Freddie. I have a dilemma. I want an additional bike to my small collection. At 55 years old, I've been riding for around 30 years. I currently have a 2007 Harley Davidson Fat Bob, which I love, and also a 2000 Aprilia RSV Mille, which I am trying to return to the road. The Aprilia was my ideal sports bike being just over six foot, but I took it off the road around 12 years ago due to work and family commitments. If it ever gets back on the road, it will still satisfy any sports cravings. I'm becoming very interested in the modern take on classic British bikes. My friend rides an Interceptor and I'm impressed. However, the new Gold Star could be equally impressive It's frustrating that BSA is slow to market and doesn't have the same level of dealer network to uh, same level of dealer network to Royal Enfield. What are your thoughts regarding the BSA and its competition? Also, would you ever consider going the whole hog and dip your toe into the classic market? The original Gold Star, for example, is an icon and will only continue to appreciate a left field alternative. I'm considering the Norton 961, but prices even secondhand are quite steep. I would also like to thank you for adding some Defender content, not a bike, but an awesome and iconic vehicle, another itch. I cannot scratch. I wonder, can you get therapy for this sort of addiction? Will you be doing any discussions on helmet choices? Another dilemma for many riders. Yes. Okay, Adrian, I want to get to, let's get to that point. In fact, I have to say the the Aprilia RSV Mille, that's a serious, serious bike, but that coupled with the Harley, I think it's a lovely, lovely pairing. I know if I had those, the Harley would be the one I'm I'm riding all the time, but, there is something I will give you it there is something about these Italian bikes whether it's sports bikes or super nakeds there's something about these Italian bikes they're very special and I find they age beautifully well as to most Italian things with regards Adrian to the interceptor and the BSA more more specifically uh, I love the Interceptor. I would very slightly go for the BSA of the Interceptor because the weight distribution, it's a lower weight distribution on the BSA, meaning it is just easier to live with because moving at slow speeds, taking off, just the feel of the bike in general for me, it's got less of a pendulum feeling when you're, you're going from left to right because the weight's so much lower. So not specifically on looks, but just that feel of where the weight's situated means that I would go for the BSA plus the fact the BSA seat is a little bit longer. So it's slightly more pleasant riding to up. A fair point you make with regards to dealers because Royal Enfield have come on just leaps and bounds with their dealer network and not just the extent of the dealer network, but now the, the interior design of it. They're, they're almost Harley-esque the way they're going. And anyone selling a Royal Enfield, any dealership selling a Royal Enfield who haven't yet got uh, an updated, ultra retro looking dealership. Well, Royal Enfield, most of the time they're on the case and, for example, they, they will have them booked in for four five or six months time to get that dealership. Or that segment of a dealership turned into a real royal enfield feeling segment of a dealership so think lots of black paints and retro images of royal enfield when they used to be based in the uk for example and just lots of other little nods to the past whether it's an old classic bike or or lots of options for for luggage or for great looking clothing They're very, very good with that. BSA do not have any of that yet. And my guess is it will take a few years for it to come because when you've only got one model of bike, well, it just, you can't justify a dealership. My guess, three years minimum before we'll be seeing anything like BSA stamping their own mark of character on dealerships within the UK until they get a product lineup of maybe three to four bikes. I I can't see it happening. And you do get that feel of connection when you go to a dedicated dealer to buy it. You do. I, I can't deny that, but there's something about that BSA there really is. So if it were me, I would probably go for the BSA, the Norton 961. That's a stunning looking bike, but you're right, Adrian, that is a lot of money how much is, how much is probably one of the coolest bikes on the market worth? You know, I, I get it. I get it. You pay for that exclusivity with Norton. Um, and it's a bike I would love to try as well. Helmet choices. I'll get to that because I ended up, I think I ended up selling most of my helmets about a year ago. I only actually own three helmets now. One is One's an exclusive, which is from France. Another is DMD from Italy. And another is from Daytona Helmets, an American company. And that's that's not even EC certified. That's DOT certified, the American certification, which isn't as stringent as the UK. So I only actually have two legal European helmets at the moment. I would, say, I would add one thing here, Adrian. I had an eye-opening. Um, an eye-opening, eye-opening message from someone where he said, basically I went into Urban Rider and there was this Bi-City helmet that looks brilliant. And there's also this Showy helmet. I think it's called the F-Zero or Zero X Showy helmet. Both the Bi-City and the Showy helmets look very similar. Yet the Bi-City one's about 130 pounds and the Showy one's about 350. So I recommended in my video, go for that buy city one and it's not that that's wrong advice but it's just i didn't understand that the showy helmet gets a hugely higher safety rating it passes a hugely higher safety standard than the buy city one and i'll be completely honest i was not fully aware that there were different safety ratings for helmets so a lot of the time when a helmet's more expensive It could be because of the safety ratings. So look out for that. I'll add one more bit onto that. They were also selling, I believe, Headon helmets, which is a British brand, and they were selling them in Urban Rider. Now these are ultra premium. Think about 500 pounds or so. Yet these helmets actually perform to a much lower standard Compared to the showy helmet, which is 200 pounds less. So it's very important to have a look at that if if, you know Makes perfect sense Safety is your most important factor with a helmet Check out the safety ratings and don't always assume that the most expensive helmet will be the safest It's something I've only learnt in the past week or so Right, I move on To Steve Freddie On the last podcast, you had a guy from Denmark who talked about all the crazy hoops he had to jump through to get his license, and other guys who talked about restrictor kits for their bikes so they could be compliant with with what sounds like crazy European laws. I got my bike license a long time ago. All I had to do was two circles left, two right two figures of eight, shift all the way up, shift all the way down, and come to a stop and not put my feet down for five seconds. Bring a car and driver. Oh, I also had to bring a car and driver so the instructor could follow me around the block. And that's it. I did it all in my 1980s Sportster. Man, I love America. I would also like to add that the brother from Scotland is totally right. Don't buy a bike on time. Buy a bike you can afford, pay cash, ride it, learn how to do your own maintenance and repair and enjoy enjoy the simple love and feeling of being in the wind. When you get down to it, it really doesn't matter what bike you have, a big Harley or a Honda 125. It's all about the ride and the adventure. It's all about the ride, adventure and pure happiness because that's what all bikes give us. Steve from the U.S. Fascinating insight, Steve. I've heard about some of the, the U.S. biking tests. So, so different to, to over here in Europe. It's eye-opening. I should also say, passing your test on a 1980 Sportster. Pff, I can think of some easier things to do it on. I. I tip my hat to you there, Steve. That's that's good going there. 1980 Sportster, passing a test. Fantastic. Steve, all my best to you in the US. Moving on. Oh, I like this. I like this. JB in Scotland. This this is well for you and I here. Have a listen to this. Freddie, I spent many years living and travelling in India and have ridden many thousands of miles and I've been many thousands of miles there. So I'm very excited to hear you'll be visiting. I fully agree with your comments regarding wearing only a helmet in terms of safety gear. I genuinely think unless you've been to a country like India or Bali, as you often mention, then you genuinely can't appreciate the sights, the sounds, the smell, the atmosphere, as well as the heat and humidity. And yes, we all know it's better to be safe than sorry. But I've tried riding there with all the gear, i.e. the jacket, the trousers, the boots, the gloves. And I can honestly say that it almost 100% takes away from the experience. And you really don't enjoy anything about riding or your surroundings. Plus, it greatly puts you off doing anything Once uh, you're out on the bike, like stopping to see the sights or going for a coffee or something to eat, etc. You very rarely ride over 20 miles an hour and the majority of other traffic on the roads are also small motorcycles, which I think gives you a feeling of safety that you don't get when surrounded by nothing but cars. I'm very much looking forward to your India trip and I'm sure you've done your homework, but just a little tip. The police are extremely corrupt. So always have a separate wallet with only small notes, i.e. 100 rupee notes or less, as sometimes they'll stop you for absolutely no reason at all and then find a reason to fine you. Sometimes even the weight of your helmet not being right. It's bizarre but true. Anyway, they will make a silly demand like 3,000 rupees but will settle for what you show that you have in your wallet. This goes for checkpoints when traveling between states. Plus, I also found they they always wanted my sunglasses as they assumed they were expensive glasses from England. They weren't. Oh, sorry, Richard. I think I just cut off the last bit. They weren't, I, and then I missed the last bit. But thank you for sending that over. Yeah, it sounds like it may be a bit more of an extreme version, India, than Bali because we had to pay some some bribes to police and I just watched the money going straight into the policeman's pocket and I have the feeling they were just asking for whatever they fancied at all and going on to your point Richard about about gear I'm really glad to hear from you because in Southeast Asia I haven't been to India yet but um great to hear from you about India as well Southeast Asia no no one no one wears any kind of gear. And I do mean no one. I think in I have spent two winters in Southeast Asia. I think I've seen zero people in anything other than an open face helmet. You just do not get anyone in biking, boots, gloves, jeans, jacket. It doesn't exist because when it's 32 degrees and humid, if you're, and again, I may get some hate for this, but if you're not willing to ride in, in, in essence, shorts and a T-shirt, you're not going to ride, you're going to be getting a taxi to places. And it's true, nearly all of the vehicles are 125cc scooters and you do feel more safe. I'll be honest, I did see a a decent chunk of crashes out in Bali. I know the roads aren't safe at all, but I really do believe it. Sometimes you just have to be a little bit flexible and accept that you, you, you do have to you do have to bend to certain situations, certain environments. If I go, so we're going to Southeast Asia. When we go to Southeast Asia, if I had to wear boots, jacket, jeans and gloves, I I don't think I'd ride because it would be so unbelievably unpleasant. Uh, It's just, it's just not doable it's really i don't think it's doable at all it's such a searingly unpleasant humid heat even just in shorts and a t-shirt and it's then a case what do you do when you get there because biking is a lifestyle out in southeast asia whether you're an 80 year old woman or what a lot of the time seems to be a 14 year old boy or anything in between you have your your little 125 150 cc honda parked outside your house you you have your helmet inside you jump on you head off you just leave it outside you move on to the next place you're on and off your bike all the time all the time and if every time you're jumping on and off your bike you're having to strip down to shorts and t-shirt it's it just it just would make no sense no sense at all but again i welcome anyone with strong views either way on that. It's fantastic to hear from you on that. Uh, And Richard, what a thing. Spent many years, let me just go back. Spent many years living and travelling in India and have ridden many thousands of miles there. What an experience. I move on. Freddie. And I'm so sorry, I didn't save your name. Freddie, two questions. Where's your next big trip going to be? Well, it is going to be And I haven't done any planning at all. I haven't even done a visa application. I haven't even looked into jabs properly. Uh, I think, what is it? Hepatitis A and typhoid. Assuming I get that sorted, it'll be India and Bali and maybe Thailand for a bit. And we'll probably spend a couple of months out there just riding around on little 150cc Hondas. In India, probably get some Royal Enfields as well. And next question, number two, what's your perfect three bike garage? Bonneville, because I think that's a keeper. Number two, something for a little bit of fun off road. And after we've been discussing it today, I will chuck the Himalayan in there because the Himalayan, yes, is an adventure bike, but also it's, and I've had this for a month, the Himalayan about two years ago, it's also unbelievably fun off-roading. Really probably for me the, the most fun I've ever had off-roading would be the Royal Enfield Himalayan. It's a it's a superbly charming bike, which is just fun in every situation, and you don't care if you drop it. That's what that's what an adventure bike should be like. You should not care if you drop it. Any bike that you want to do some off-roading on, it should be the kind of bike that looks better with scratches. You drop it, it gets a dent here or there. It gets scratched here or there. It doesn't matter. You pick it up, you laugh and you carry on. If it's not like that, the bike that you're going to be off-roading, then it, it shouldn't be taken off-road for me in my eyes. And that's why I love the Himalayan because the price point, I think you can get a Himalayan used for two and a half grand. You just rag it. I think it's got 20 horsepower. Ride it around off-road and just oh just the time of your life it's amazing. And the third one third bike I'm going to say Harley Davidson Street Glide I was close between the softtail Deluxe, the classic looking one, or the Street Glide. And I would go, if you're going to go cruiser, I will go all out Street Glide. That's the one with the big plastic front fender. Two speakers in, on the left and right hand side of that front fender, all in black. I'd go for it's got the hard panniers either side. You can get a really nice, chunky backrest with it. I could have my music blaring. I could have the panniers all packed up. And that with the Bonneville and the Himalayan, I think would be my dream three bike garage. Right, I move on. And this is the final one of the final one of this week. And it's a long one because it's two, it's two separate emails in one. So I begin, hopefully my nose holds out. Here we go. Freddie, storing a bike over winter and and removing the fuel. Having done this several times, storing the bike that is, I find the best way is to actually top the fuel tank up to the brim. This fills the void and does not allow condensation to form on the inside of the tank. This is certainly easier than emptying it and has been fine for me over the years. Next point, restriction for motorbikes. Although I don't want to go against the other listeners comments of buying a restrictor and never fitting it, I feel I must. Bikes are fun, but they can be dangerous. There's a reason you're limited to what you can ride on an A2 or even CBT. It's because you haven't passed the full test. Passing the full test means you've been assessed and accredited to ride a full power machine. I'm not trying to take people's fun away, but if you're restricted to what you can do, then live with it until you progress via the correct channels. It's not worth getting points, getting your insurance validated or even having an accident just because you didn't want to stick to the rules. The financial freedom issue. I agree with the listener who mentioned mileage on a PCP deal. Looking at most of the deals available, mileage is certainly limited on these. It must also be remembered that any blemishes on the bike would incur a cost if you returned it after the PCP period. That could be as simple as a boot scuff near the pegs. I think this takes away from your freedom, as I'd be worried about getting a small scratch or dent on the bike and the consequences. I think HP is the only way to go if you have to do finance. At least you own the machine and it's a true reflection of what you can really afford. About the listener who mentioned displacement and how he had more fun on a 250 than a larger displacement bike, I couldn't agree with him more. I've ridden all sorts, starting on an SV650 as my first big bike, then on to others such as a CBR900RR, 1250 Bandit, GSX, GSXS, 750, etc, etc. I think you find a displacement that suits you. For me, six hundred to eight hundred seems to be a happy medium. I think the smaller displacements are a lot of fun. One two fives can be a right hoot, as you're finding with the Dax. I expect. As for cruisers that are coming into realistic prices, have you looked at a Suzuki Intruder fifteen hundred Z or VZ VZ? They can be picked up for about £6,000 and what a lot of bike, Sean. Sean, I have actually looked at those intruders and you're right. For a 1,500cc cruiser, that looks the business. It's a seriously impressive bike. £6,000 for that. That's a, a seriously good deal. I'm a huge fan of these Japanese bikes for what you get. What you get for the money. They don't hold the value like Harley's but... The reality is these are seriously good, cool looking, mile muncher bikes. This, the, the Yamaha Drag Star. There's a lot of good Japanese cruisers out there that are, that are underappreciated. And let me just check. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going through that now. A2 license. It's a very good point. Common sense is speaking here, Sean. So thank you for sending that over and also with regards to displacement. This is what I hear a lot, Sean. A lot of the time it's, and I put myself in this category as well, I do. A lot of the time it's bikers who have had a a few years experience and you'll go the full hog. Sean's had a 1250 Bandit, colossal engine bike, yet still enjoys the thrill of the the small displacement engines, the 125, the 250s. We all go through that. You pass your test, you are, unspeakably excited about just going out there and getting a really, a big bike. And you think that's where most of the fun lies. And a lot of the time you buy that big engine bike and yes, it's lovely to have that extra power, but, and this this may sound funny, and again, I welcome people uh, jumping in here. The power can sometimes, you know, lose its appeal after a while. There are only so many times you can slow down, go from zero to 80 and then slow down zero to 80. I found after a while having my Triumph Speed Twin, it it, it had no real meaning doing that insane speed with the incredible acceleration after a while. And the thrill from purely doing that I found in the end to be significantly less than the thrill of riding the Bonneville at all speeds. There's a definite thrill to whether it's a 125 or 250cc lightweight bike, just enjoying every element of going from, whether it's nought to 40 nought to 60 pootling around town, enjoying the whole ride. And not just a ride when you're on the motorway with three friends egging each other on getting up to 110 miles an hour, but enjoying everything about it, everything about the ride. And that's what the slower and or smaller bikes can often give Uh, in a way that the bigger, more powerful bikes can't. Thank you, Sean. I move on. There is one more, actually, I had to get to this. This is from Rob, because Rob sent me over this. Uh, Okay, let's have a look. This is on Apple News. Freddie, I heard that these were targeted um, for New rider training programs. 2023 Harley Davidson X 350 and Harley Davidson X 350 R A. Okay, I'm opening Apple News here. Rob, thank you for sending this over. I didn't know about this until I just opened it. Harley Davidson. Are bringing out. Two 350cc bikes. And they are, I'm just reading here now, they're Chinese bikes. I'm on Motorcycle.com on Apple News. They're Chinese built models, built in partnership with China's Kuang Motors. Uh, and it was announced in 2019. Uh, there've been a few delays as always are with China at the moment with chips and everything like that and lockdowns. But it looks like it could be fairly imminent, certainly this year. There's a, there's one image of the bike and it looks okay. It looks okay. I'm trying to think how to describe it. And the best way I think I can, the Indian FTR motorbike, the 1200 flat tracker Indian motorbike. Think that, but on a slightly smaller, more scaled back. Stage with 350cc engine. So think the Indian FTR, but just scaled back size wise. Look, it looks okay. I've said in a few episodes before, I don't think Harley Davidson do. I don't think they do smaller bikes or or other bikes that well. I remember they had a 750 there released a few years ago. I didn't think that was a great looking bike. And I think there are probably better looking bikes than this Harley Davidson 350. I think it's almost a bit of a missed opportunity because I know that 40 years ago, Harley Davidson, I'm sure they had some cool looking small bikes. I know they did because I've seen it. But often when Harley Davidson try and veer off, to the left or the right of their core, I don't think they get it quite right. And I welcome your thoughts on this. For me, with the big cruisers, there is no one that touches Harley Davidson with the possible exception of Indian, but the Americans do it best. There's no question about that at all. They understand the, the character and the, the event that comes with making these colossal cruisers. It's an event. It's something to make you feel incredible. And no one does entertainment like the Americans. But then sometimes they go off on a tangent and they try and do they try and do something else. And a lot of the time I don't think it's quite right. So I don't know. If this will actually be a success or not, I'm unsure about it. So that's fascinating to see it. Rob, thank you and I welcome. I welcome all thoughts on that, whether you're American, European or somewhere in between. I'll I'll share out your thoughts if you feel strongly either way on that. And I will wrap it up there. Thank you, everyone, for bearing with me with my ludicrous voice this week. Well, I must be back to standard next week, I'm sure. You can go and check out, again, the new Facebook page, the new Instagram page, where I'll be sharing some pictures uh, that will support and go alongside the podcast i hope you all have a brilliant week and i'll speak to you all